it in Jesus' holy name. Everybody says, hallelujah. So we're going to start our why the rapture. Why do we believe a pre-tribulation rapture in this church? And why do many people not understand that reality? So we're going to start here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 13. The apostle Paul writes, but I wouldn't I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now, that's your first clue. The Apostle Paul, whenever he begins to unload this teaching upon the church, this word hope is key. We're going to begin with that word. We're going to end with that word. But there is hope in the world today as we look to Christ. And that is that Christ resurrected from the dead and his promise, listen, his promise is that all who believe upon him, listen, shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's his promise. And so this eternal life that God gives the believer gives us hope that this world is not all that there is and that we won't die in our sins. We won't die and go to hell and and that there is more. I often say um, sometimes at funerals in different places, but death is only a doorway to eternity. That's all it is. It's not goodbye. It's I'll see you later. It's a doorway into the reality of where God is. Death is a doorway to eternity, and we're all going to walk in that doorway. Some of us are going to walk up the stairway to heaven. Others are going to go down to the pit of hell, and it's all determined on what you do with Jesus. It's that you believe that he is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he rose from the dead on the third day. That makes you a believer. And so we see here in verse number 13 this word hope, that is central to the teaching of the rapture. As we learn about hope, it is that God's uh, getting us to look up, not always to look down. Amen? Others, whenever they bury their loved ones and they don't know Christ and they don't have this hope of eternal life, I tell you, sorrow is hard. When you say goodbye to a loved one, it is hard. But when you know that they're a believer, there is a sweetness attached to the goodbye. And that sweetness is, I'll see you soon. Hallelujah. Amen. David said that about his son. He got up. They wondered why after he got the news that his son had died. They wondered why he got up. He no longer was fasting. He no longer was praying. He got up and he was ready to eat. And they said, what's wrong with you? And he said, well, he can't come where I am now, but one day I'll go where he is. And that's the reality that we all have for those loved ones that have gone on ahead of us. So we have hope. And here here specifically is the hope. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Asleep here is death, is what he's talking about. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Hallelujah. That's the promise of the rapture. And so here we see a a few truths that I want to point out. Number one is that the meeting is in the air. When Jesus comes back at the second coming, he's coming back according to Zechariah chapter 13. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1, he lifted up. The angel said he's coming back to the same place. That was the Mount of Olives. And so at the second coming, Jesus' feet are actually going to hit the earth. But I want you to see this truth that you just read that is exciting that Paul calls hope. 
That truth is that the church meets Jesus in the air, not on Mount Olives. So that's a reality that many people miss, and that it shows you a, a dichotomy between the second coming and the rapture. These are two different events separated by a seven-year window, as you'll see in a few moments. Number one, it is that we meet the Lord in the air. Number two thing I want you to see is the word caught up. The word caught up is where we get the word rapture from if you look into the Greek which is where the New Testament comes from the word there is harpazo that's the word harpazo so many times people say oh the word rapture is not in the Bible it's a man-made teaching the word Trinity is not in the Bible it's a man-made teaching to those kind of people you just say well you know what the word Bible is not in the Bible it must be a man-made teaching so it's kind of silly the reality is the word rapture is in the Bible. You just read it, caught up. In Greek, it's harpazo. In Latin, it's rapture. That's the English way to say it. So that's where that comes from. And, and some, sometimes people don't understand, but the Bible was, the New Testament was written in Greek, and then it was first translated into Latin, and then it was translated back to Greek and then to English. So that's the reality of the Bible translation process, but that's how that word stuck. That word just stuck out. Now, the word caught up that you see here is also in other parts of the Bible. It's not just, a, it's not just like, hey, they caught a cold. It's not just, hey, I was running and they caught up to me. The word caught up here, it, the definition means a snatching away. I've heard uh, one, one person teach that it is the same picture of the verb tense is given as if a child is running into the street and a car is about to hit them. And how many of you know a mom or a dad's going to yank that kid by the, it doesn't, by the back of the neck, by the shirt, by the leg, but they're going to just pull as hard and fast as they can. And that's the verb, that's the verb tense that is used in this word so that whenever the Lord, when that trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise, we're going to go up faster than you can shake a stick. We're going to go up. It, it's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. The Lord is going to shout. That trumpet's going to sound, and it's going to be a hallelujah chorus in the air, and we're going to have the marriage supper, the lamb, which uh, was in Jewish times was represented by seven days, and we're going to have seven years of it. So here we see an important reality number one there's a meeting in the air number two this word caught up now there i'll just share with you briefly you can look these up later um, in acts chapter eight if you remember philip whenever philip was baptizing the ethiopian eunuch it says he got caught up and he was translated to an entirely different place in a moment of time. Philip didn't even take, he didn't even have time to know where he was going. He came up out of the water from that baptism and he was caught up to an entirely different place. It was that quick. In Paul, in Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, whenever Paul was caught up to the third heaven, it's the same exact word, harpazo. He was caught up. He was praying, and he was immediately in the third heaven, which is above the sky and above the stars and is in heaven where God dwells. Amen? So what an important, and there's other, there's other instances of the same word, but I'm giving you the Greek part of it. So these are New Testament usages. There's also a passage in Revelation chapter number 12. Revelation chapter number 12, you have the woman who's given birth to the child. The child is caught up, caught up to heaven. It's the same exact word. So this is a specific word. It's not a casual word. So whenever you begin to read this and you begin to think on these things, you need to know that the word caught up is is a hot button word. It means a literal take out of this place and go to another place. That's exactly what it means. So this is a, a big reality. Now, whenever you begin to talk about the, the end times, the rapture, these, these kinds of events, I'll tell you who started this. Jesus did. Jesus started this because he said he was coming back. And the minute he said he was coming back, his disciples began to ask, the question we all ask, when? That's what prophecy teachers and, and ministries and all kinds of, that's what they specialize in, when? Well, the disciples started that. Let's look at that in Matthew chapter number 24. Let me show you that. So what, what this is called, um, 
the casual observer, we would call it, hey, it's end time study. It's end times prophecy. Um, if you want to, you know, um, get a $2 title to your name, you can call it eschatology. That's what some people call it. That's just the $2 word. Uh, but it's the study of the end times. And I just want to show you that it's okay to study the end times because the disciples, they, they were the very first ones to ask about it. So sometimes you, you'll, you'll talk to some people and they may say, yeah, that's not for us to know. You know, who cares? Well, the disciples cared. Why? Why would they care so much? The one whom they loved said he's going to die and then he's going to go to heaven and then he's going to come back? I mean, if, if, if you knew Jesus was coming back, if you had that much intimacy with him where you lived with him, you walked with him, I mean, they had, they had so much intimate knowledge of Jesus, they wanted to be where he was. They loved him. Amen? They were completely disillusioned during, the, during the, the death, those three days in the tomb, completely disillusioned, and then ecstatic at the resurrection. And, and they immediately, they wanted to know when. So look in, in here in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And it says in verse number three, it says, he sat upon the Mount of Olives, which is kind of awesome, uh, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? So there, right there, is the beginning of the New Testament eschatology. Jesus had told them previously, if you read uh, John chapter 14, he was going away, and he was coming back. What about John 14? He said he was going to prepare a mansion. Amen. He was going to prepare a mansion. He's got a mansion in heaven for the believer. And so he was going to prepare a mansion. He's coming back. He said, um, in verse number four, Jesus answered and said unto them, here's the answer. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. Listen to this, for nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences, which is diseases, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. We'll stop right there. So Jesus here is telling us that there's going to be commotion in the world. The, the world is going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be boiling over. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, diseases. There's going to be hunger issues, earthquakes. In other words, things are going to seem like they're out of control. Does it remind you of the world today? It's going to seem like the world is, is, is just launched out there and there's no reining it back in. That's the plan. Jesus said that these are the beginning of sorrows. In other words, people are going to get broken of their love for the world. There's a, a, a coming right now that you see in the world today where earthquakes have increased in not only frequency, but intensity. Diseases, they're going to come out more frequent. They're, gonna, they're going to be lining people up for all that stuff. It's not going to end. It's going to keep on going until the Lord comes back. Now, here we see an uh, important process, though. I wanted you to see this. Ever since the disciples asked this question, the church has studied it, right? Who started eschatology? The disciples did. Who's still doing it? We are, because Jesus hasn't come back yet. Now, there's an important distinction I want to get into before we get into. I got five main reasons for the rapture, okay? I'm going to give you five main reasons for the rapture. Um, but, but one thing I want you to see before we do that Almost everybody agrees there's going to be a pre-tribulation rapture, a mid-tribulation rapture, or a, a post-tribulation rapture. But there are some people that don't even believe in a millennial reign of Christ, which we find in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. But the thousand-year reign of Christ is where we get that terminology, millennium, and most people see something's going to happen to the church before that time. They just disagree about when. We believe a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, we're going to begin to get into why we believe that. 
Why, why do you believe it? Do you know why you believe it? This is important to know in this day. You don't need to believe it just because your pastor believes it. You don't need to believe it just because your church believes it. You need to see from the word of God what the truth is and line yourself up with the word of God. And so one of the things that we're going to look at here is that there's a, a difference, okay? One of the problems that people miss, one of the problems that people get into whenever they begin to study end times is they confuse the church and Israel. They begin to ch- confuse the two. If you confuse the two between the church and Israel, you're going to get misled. You're going you're gonna to begin to get in left field one way or the other. You have to understand there's a difference. God will turn his attention back to Israel. We are the one on the stage or the platform right now, but that stage, that platform, the light's about to shut off, and the light's going to begin to dawn upon Israel again. He's going to turn his attention to Israel. And I'm going to show you that real quick in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to show you that there is a difference. Because if you ever have been misled in this area, you just need to see this verse, okay? You just need to see this verse. Now, there are additional verses you can get into, uh, like Romans uh, chapter number 11. Um, God does an awesome way of bifurcating the gospel and the election of Israel. It's a, a really important teaching that hopefully one day we'll get back into. Uh, but right here, I just want you to see this verse, because uh, if you ever have a problem in that area, you can just come back here. First um, Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 32. Give none offense. Give none offense. Now, there's three categories of people that are described here. Give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. I want you to see that. There's three categories of people in that verse. Um, that is the Jew, that's Israel, the Gentile, that's the non-believer, and then the church of God. Now, that could be a Jewish believer. It could be a Gentile believer. It could be a barbarian, a Scythian. It could be a woman. It could be a man. It could be anybody. But if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they're a part of the church. They are the bride of Christ. But that's the three categories that God sees on the earth today. There's either Jews, Gentiles, or believers. You're either, um, you're, you're one of those three categories, and Lord willing, you're a believer. If you're a believer... As we said, as we read earlier, there's hope for the believer. Now, when we come into the rapture teaching, there's uh, a few principles that we're going to lay out. Uh, number one, number one, number one principle that we're going to lay out is that tribulation may come. Tribulation will come. Jesus said uh, that you will have tribulation, but to be of good cheer because he overcame the world. That's what Jesus said. So tribulation will come, but when we're talking about the pre-tribulation rapture, we're actually giving it a, a name, but it is a reality um, from prophecy. And if you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter number 9, I'll show you that. Daniel chapter number 9. So that's going to be after Isaiah, after Ezekiel, right over there to Daniel chapter number 9. Now, you can literally do a whole entire Bible study or series on this chapter, uh, but I'm just going to briefly tell you that uh, this chapter is a roadmap for all of prophecy that God has. One of the things that most people miss is that what the things that God unloads in Daniel chapter 9, and all of Daniel really, but Daniel chapter 9 sums it up, it gives you a roadmap for where we are and what's going to happen. So Daniel chapter 9, verse number 20, Daniel chapter 9, verse number 20, Daniel says, And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Now that's, I'm going to stop right there. So Daniel is interceding not only for himself, but for the nation of Israel. So this tells you the things that Gabriel's about to tell Daniel all have to do with the nation of of Israel. What had happened to the nation of Israel? Well, they had, you know that they were in covenant with God. Amen. They got in covenant with God in the book of Exodus whenever Moses brought them out and they went to Mount Sinai. They got in covenant with God. Now Israel was split into two kingdoms after Solomon. 
Those two kingdoms rebelled against God. Both of them did. But God had his eye on Judah because that was David's house. Israel, God divorced. It's true. You can read it in the book of Jeremiah. God did divorce them because they broke the covenant. God called them spiritual adulterers. They had committed adultery while they were in covenant, so God divorced them after many years of sending prophets, many years of warning them, many years of begging them to come back, and God sent them out. He, in fact, scattered them to the wind. Um, They're called the lost tribes of Israel. They're scattered among the Gentiles. So now God has Judah, and Judah um, was the problem child still. They saw the, what happened to Israel, but they didn't repent. They didn't come back and become a chaste virgin for God. They still began to worship the false gods. They still began to um, go and do things in the, in the high places that are ungodly. And um, they, were just, they continued to rebel against God. So God is warning them. And then at one point in time, God allows them to be taken into captivity. Daniel is that person. Daniel's generation, they were the ones taken into Babylon. That's the captivity that we're talking about. So while they're in captivity, this is, this is basically their time out. God put them in time out, and he's trying to give them one last warning. And so Daniel's interceding for his nation. His nation is now in captivity because of their rebellion. They're no longer in Israel. They're no longer able to go to the temple. They're no longer able to worship the way they're supposed to worship, but they're they're held in a foreign land, and they have to serve a foreign king, and he knows that it's not the way God wants it to be. And so he begins to pray and cry out for his nation. So, hey, this is one of those things where you need to see intercessors. God loves intercessors. When you look at the church today and you see that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, don't just say, well, you know, and just tear people down. Pray intercede if you'll begin to intercede and cry out for yourself and for your people the church right that's your people the church we're not talking about just americans your people are the church if you'll begin to cry out and intercede for them god may hear your prayer god may hear your prayer you may be a daniel you may be someone that god listens to and that's you know we have uh more we can talk about that but notice here number uh, verse number 24 verse number 24 this was the judgment, okay? Because Daniel wants to know, when are we going to go back home? When is everything going to be restored? You're pouring out your judgment on... How many of you know that's important to know? I, I like to know that. It's one, it's one thing if I'm going through a hard time, but it's another if I know when it's going to let up. Is there light at the end of the tunnel, right? And that's what Daniel, Daniel's looking for. When are we going to get to go back home? When are things going to be restored? Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? And so God brings that word through Gabriel. It says in verse number 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. I'm going to stop right there. Seventy weeks of what? It doesn't say. It could be 70 weeks of days. It could be 70 weeks of weeks. It could be 70 weeks of years. It could be 70 weeks of centuries or decades. God doesn't say 70 weeks of what. That's important to know. He doesn't say 70 weeks of what. So one of the clues that you know that this is not done yet, look at these promises. Look at these promises. The promise is the transgression is going to be finished. There's going to be an end to sin. Uh, do people sin today? Look out the doors, right? And look, in, look in here, right? Yes, we still sin sometimes. So there, there's not an end to sin. So, obviously, this hasn't happened yet. So, you should be then saying, so from Daniel's time to today, there's still something going on. And now you're beginning to, to see the issue. There's, um, prophecy teachers will tell you, it, the, the 70 weeks are weeks of years. 70 weeks of years. So, we're talking about 77-year time periods. That's what he's talking about. That 
equals 490 years. Now, the Jews counted time differently than us. 360 days were their calendar. They didn't have the leap year. They didn't have to do that. They had leap, leap months, right? No. They had entirely different calendar system. Now, watch this. Watch this. Um, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter number 30. Jeremiah chapter number 30. I showed you here that this judgment is for the nation of Israel, and it's 490 years, 490 years. Whenever you talk about the tribulation, you're going to have to ask yourself this question, okay? This is the question you need to ask yourself when you talk about the tribulation. Now, is the church going to go in it? Is it going to go in or is it going to go up? That's the question you have to ask. There's only two options. The church, the bride of Christ, is either going in or it's going up. There's no third option. So you have to make that determination based on Scripture, whether God will allow his bride to go in it or he'll take them out first. So with that said here, I want you to see this in Jeremiah chapter 30. Now this verse is actually the true technical word for the tribulation, okay? In verse number 6, Jeremiah 30, verse 6, Ask you now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore, do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. What is, if, if guys had their hands on their hips like this, and they were bent over like women giving birth, and their faces were white and pale, what would that make you feel like? What would it seem like to you? I would say they're probably, it's hunger pains. They're, they're probably starving to death. They're probably starving to death. That would be the first, you know, because, you know, you, you may not know it yet, right? Because this generation doesn't know much, but boys can't give birth. They don't travail in birth, right? So no gender issues, just realities, chromosomal differences. And, and so if guys are holding their hips and they're bowled over like a woman about to give birth and their faces are pale, they've either, you know, they either drank the water in a foreign nation or they're hungry and they're starving to death. And if you look back into the tribulation, one of the things that you know is that we won't be able to buy or sell. We won't be able to buy or sell without taking the mark of the beast. And anybody that takes the mark of the beast would be forced, forced to worship the Antichrist, and they would go to hell. And so if you were not able to buy or sell anything, you would literally starve to death. You would literally starve to death. You wouldn't be able to pay your Swebco. You wouldn't be able to buy a jug of milk. Well, I would just trade on my cryptocurrency. It says you won't be able to buy or sell. All oh, it's going to be shut down. I'll trade on my donkey. I don't know. It says you're not going to be able to buy or sell. So, you know, that's what the word says. And so if, if you were in a prolonged period of time where you weren't able to buy or sell food, you might get hungry, right? You might get hungry. And look at verse number seven. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now, this is the, this is the verse that we know. This is the biblical terminology for the tribulation. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob had been given by God, I just showed you, 490 years of judgment. 483 of those years have come to pass when Jesus was cut off for others there was a prophetic stoppage that took place, and I'll show you that in just a second. This 483 years started when they went back to their homeland and began to build the temple again. That's when God started the 490-year window. He stopped it when Jesus was crucified, okay? And, and so this last time period has not happened yet this what you just read has not happened yet because the bible says there's no time like it that day is great and there's none like it that means that there's going to be an epic horrible time 
day for the Jews, even unparalleled for what Hitler did to them. It's going to be horrible. There's going to be a time, and they're going to know. They're going to know that they messed up. I'll show you that in a little bit. So here, this time of Jacob's trouble, that's the true biblical name of it. And I want you to see this. It says, but he shall be saved out of it. But he shall be saved out of it. That's going to come in when you look at the second coming and the Lord comes back and every eye sees him. Those that pierce him, they're going to know that they're going to look upon the one whom they've pierced. And, they're going, and God's going to save them out of their trouble at the battle of Armageddon. So here is this important truth. Now, um, turn with me back to Daniel 9. I'll show you this. Daniel 9. Just go back over there real quick. And as I said earlier, this Daniel 9 is, is really a roadmap prophetically that, that you're going to have to get it down. There's some things in the Bible that you're just going to have to get down. You know, the table of contents is one of them. So you know where to go, when to go. You need to get down the cross. It's a dispensation. Sometimes people talk about dispensations and they're like, ah, I'm not a dispensationalist. Well, if you're not sacrificing to a Levitical priest, you're a dispensationalist because everything changed at the cross. A dispensation just means simply that things are different now than they once were or they're going to be different in the future. And we see there's going to be a different time period whenever it's the time of Jacob's trouble is not the time that we're in now, right? And so look here in verse, um, verse number 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks the street shall be built again, the, well, the wall, even in troublous times. That's 69 of the 70 weeks of years. That's 483. And if you'll add it up, Nehemiah chapter 2 shows you when Nehemiah was allowed to reinstitute the building of the wall and the building of the temple. From that day that Nehemiah was sent to the day that Jesus rode the donkey, into Jerusalem was 483 years exactly to the day. One of the great theologians or uh, ministers that we have is uh, Robert uh, Anderson. He was um, in England, and, and he wrote a book about it, The Coming Prince. But he detailed chronologically 483 years from the day Nehemiah was sent back from Babylon to Israel to start rebuilding, 483 years to the day of Palm Sunday. And if you know, Palm Sunday, that was the week that Jesus was crucified. So this reality, this verse has happened. This verse has happened. There was seven and 62. Seven and, and, and three score and 62. Now look at this. And after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off. Now, what's relevant about that? Well, seven of them, it took, it took 49 years to build the temple. It took 49 years for them to build the temple again. That's where that's at. So three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Somebody say hallelujah, it was for me. Amen. It was for me. Uh, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come, it's not a good guy. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood unto the end of the war desolations are determined. In other words, the Antichrist people are going to come and they're going to stay there until the end of that war is determined. Now, we don't know when that day is, but we know it's coming soon. We know it's coming soon. Um, and then this last verse, it says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease for the overspreading of abominations. He shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. This, um, do you see there where it says one week? You see there where it says one week? That's a seven-year time period. That's the time of Jacob's trouble. That's what that is, okay? 
that one week right there is a seven-year time period. It parallels with Jeremiah chapter 30. It parallels with this chapter. It parallels with Matthew 24. And it parallels with what Jesus teaches us in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you see that the Antichrist comes on the scene for a time, times, and a half time. That's one year, two years, and a half time. The abomination of desolation that you read about here, Jesus talks about in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark. And one of the things that he says is, in the middle of that seven-year time period, there's going to be an abomination of desolation. It says here, in the midst of the week. In the midst of it. That's the middle of it. Three and a half years. So what, what can we surmise from this? We can surmise this. The Antichrist is going to rule for peace. For He's going to strike a seven-year peace treaty with Israel And in the middle of it, he's going to make them worship him as God. That's the abomination of desolation. The third temple, the Antichrist will reign in. When they build a third temple, Jesus isn't going to sit in that one. It's going to be destroyed. There will be another one, the millennial temple of Ezekiel. So what we see here is that there's a one-week time period left. That's a seven-year time period left. That's the time of Jacob's trouble. This time period is the one we're talking about when you look at eschatology, and you have to ask yourself, are you going into this, or is God taking you out of this? That's the question you have to ask yourself. So that's point number one. Tribulation will come. Tribulation will come, but for who? Will it come for the church or will it come for Jacob? That's a question you're going to have to ask yourself. And I'll show you here. It's for Israel. It is for Israel. Number two, number two, the righteous are protected from God's wrath. The righteous are protected from God's wrath. Now, you'll see this in Genesis chapter 19, one of the first examples of this uh, that you'll see. Genesis chapter 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, history lesson for the LGBT. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed for their wickedness, their sexual perversion, which is what we call homosexuality today. It's just a psychological word. God calls it sodomy. Um, One of the things that that happened, though, is that God came down. One of the most uh, prolific Trinitarian passages is right before that, whenever the Lord is speaking to Abraham face to face, and the two angels go on into Sodom and Gomorrah and talk to Lot. And then they find out that it is as wicked as the report was. And you'll see that, how many of you know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? God destroys it. God destroys it. Let me show you that. Turn with me to Genesis 19. I'm going to show you real quick. Genesis 19. We're on point number two. The righteous are protected from God's wrath. Point number two. So Genesis 19. Now, if you want to get into the whole thing, read the whole chapter. In fact, read chapter 18 with it. it you, get, you get the concept of the Trinity. You get this concept. You get all kinds of good things. Um, but Genesis 19, verse number 22. This is the angel speaking to Lot. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, there's your Trinitarian passage there. The Lord rained down fire and brimstone from the Lord in heaven. There's two lords in that passage. Uh, the old Jews called it the two powers. They didn't know what to do with it. They just called it the two powers in, in the Jewish uh, Targums. But here, uh, I want you to see this concept, though, that Lot had to come out before the fire came down. Lot had to come out before the fire came down. Here's another one for you. Noah had to get in the ark before the flood came upon the earth, Right? Noah had to go in the ark before the flood came upon the earth. This concept is throughout all the Bible. When the righteous are there, and this is the concept, when God pours judgment on people, he pulls his people out first. Now, if it's the world's wrath, how many of you know almost every single prophet 
an apostle was martyred. They all faced the wrath of men. That's a different enchilada. The enchilada we're talking about is God's wrath. And God's wrath is always poured out on the wicked, never on the righteous. You'll never see an example in the Bible where God pours judgment on righteous people. Never. So that's an important concept to listen to. This wrath. Then other examples, uh, Rahab. How many of y'all know Rahab? Rahab was on the, in, in Jericho. She was in the wall, and, and she wasn't the best of characters, but she heard about Jehovah God, and she trusted Jehovah God. And Joshua, you know, they told her if she let down that scarlet cord, that whenever judgment came to Jericho, they would save her. They wouldn't harm her and whoever was in her home. And that was exactly what happened. God has this principle. When she believed on Jehovah, she trusted Jehovah, he protected her when judgment came. And, and all throughout the Bible, even, even one of the better examples is even the Passover. The Passover. If you believe God, you put the blood on the doorpost. When God's judging a people, he would pass over you. Amen? But if they didn't trust God, then God's judgment would come on them. So God didn't just kill all the firstborn of everybody and sort it out after. The righteous were preserved from judgment. All throughout the Bible, you'll always see that concept, okay? So this is a concept that you need to understand. Because when, not if, when the Antichrist comes, it is not going to be good. Revelation describes this time period in a very unique way that you need to see. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. How many of you know Revelation is about... Prophetic events that are soon to happen. Amen? You might even see the, you might even be able to smell Revelation beginning to unfold. Revelation chapter 6. We're going to go down all the way to verse, let's go to verse number 15. It says, Revelation 16, verse 15. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, every bondman, every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, that verse right there, the people that have the, the meek and mild Jesus, they got a problem right there. The lamb is meek. He came to lay down his life, but he's got a wrath that's coming. And it says here that there's the wrath of the lamb coming on the earth. So ask yourself, in light of biblical history, no time did God ever pour his judgment on his people. So when the lamb pours out his wrath... On the earth, do you think he's going to pour it out on his bride? No. He's not going to pour it out on his bride. No, you wouldn't do that to your bride. You wouldn't do that to your family. And we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We're supposed to be the chaste virgin for him. We're supposed to be having our lamps full of oil ready for his return. And the Lord here is characterized this time period as the wrath of the Lamb. So there's something you need to see. The time of Jacob's trouble is the wrath of the Lamb. Who's God mad at? Who's God mad at? The nation that rejected him? He's going to finish their transgression out. This is the last of it. And it's going to be a time like no other. So the wrath of the Lamb is important to see the righteous are protected from God's wrath. You see the example in Lot. In Noah, Rahab, the Passover, you can even see it in other examples too. I'm just skimming the surface just for the sake of time. But point number two stands. Point number two stands. Number three is one of my favorites. 2 Thessalonians chapter number two. 2 Thessalonians chapter number two. Point number three. Somebody gets to leave. Somebody gets to check out. And in, 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 in the somebody that gets to check out, checks out before the Antichrist. How many of you have seen movies about the Antichrist? Hopefully that's all we see about him, right? 
I don't want to know who he is. All I want to know is that everybody that I know gets to go up into heaven. That's what I want to know. But here's an important concept that, that whenever you begin to talk about the tribulation and, you, you, and, and some people may deny the rapture because they think the word's not in there as we dealt with or they don't understand dispensationally the difference between Jews and Gentiles and the church of God, which we dealt with. And they don't understand prophecy, Daniel chapter 9, which we dealt with. They don't understand the protection that God's people have from his wrath. Not the wrath of men, the wrath of God. You Listen, as a child of God, as a blood-bought Christian, a believer, you have protection from God's wrath. Makes sense, right? Okay. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, and, and we're going to move down to verse, let's go to verse number 6. Oh, let's read verse 5. Remember you not, that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. He's talking about the Antichrist. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now let it will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. We'll stop right there. So what you see here is that there's going to be a letting. There's a letting that letteth. That's letteth. I want to just touch on that. The word let, King James Bible. The word let in the King James Bible means hinder. Hinder. That's what it means. It means it's been impeded. Um, it, it, and I don't encourage you to play tennis, but if you play tennis and the tennis ball hits the net, the umpire says, let ball. That means that the ball hit the net and the net hindered it. Okay? So let ball means hinder is an old English term. So what is happening here is, if you'll read in verse number 7, he who let it will let. That means he who hinders is going to continue hindering until he's taken out of the way. Then the Antichrist will be revealed. Okay? So you need to ask yourself, who's going to be taken out of the way so that the Antichrist can come onto the scene? Ask yourself that. Who's taken out of the way and then the Antichrist comes? Who is it that fulfills this verse? There's only two options that anybody's ever taught. The Holy Spirit or the church. That's the only two options anybody's ever taught. Now, I want to ask you something. Are you saved? Yes. If you're saved, does the Holy Spirit live in you? Yes. If the Holy Spirit is the one taken out, is God taking the Holy Spirit out of you? No. No. He's come to live in us, to dwell in us. So it's not the Holy Spirit that gets taken out of the earth. Otherwise, we'd be lost. We'd go back to unsaved. So you, that just totally voids out that whole concept of it's the Holy Spirit that gets taken out. So that leaves you with one option. It's the church. The church is the salt. The church is the light. The church is the one rebuking the darkness, is lifting up the name of Jesus, is preaching the gospel, is doing the work of the gospel until he comes, baptizing, teaching, making disciples. These are the things that we're supposed to do. And, and as the church is the church, we're hindering the mystery of iniquity. We're hindering the arrival of Antichrist. Only after either us or the Holy Spirit's taken out is the Antichrist going to come. That's it. It says in verse 7, until he be taken out of the way, and then shall the Antichrist be revealed. So point number three is somebody's taken out before the Antichrist reigns. Who? Who? The church. The church gets taken out before the Antichrist. And if you know anything about the end times, the Antichrist is the one running the show for seven years. Okay? So if the Antichrist is the one running the show for the seven years, and the church gets taken out before the Antichrist, guess what? You're not going in the tribulation. You're not going in the time of Jacob's trouble. God's going to take the church out before that happens. 
So that, that's your third main precept for understanding why we hold to the pre-tribulation rapture. Number four is just as good. Number four is just as good. Someone comes with Jesus to the second coming. Did you know that God has animals in heaven? Somebody asked me one time, is my dog in heaven or my cat? I, said, I don't know, but I do know that God has animals in heaven. I don't know what kind of dog or cat you have. Some cats I would question. But, but God, God evidently does have a stable in heaven because there's horses in heaven. Turn with me to Revelation 19. Let's cover point number four. Revelation 19. We're covering five points. Revelation 19. Verse number 14. Now, I encourage you to read the whole chapter, get more context on your own. Let me just cover this. Revelation 19, verse number 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So there's an army coming behind Jesus. This passage is talking about when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's going to rise up from the marriage supper of the lamb. He's going to, you know, be done eating. He's going to stand up. He's going to mount the horse and he's going to come. And this verse here, verse 14 says, the armies of heaven are coming behind him on horses and they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's an important verb that you need to see. That's an important description you need to see. Why is that, Pastor? Look over into verse number 7. Look back into verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage, supper, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife had made herself ready, and to her the wife of Christ... And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So this tells you right here, the army coming behind Jesus is his wife. Who's the bride of Christ? The church. The church is the bride of Christ. So when Jesus comes back at the second coming, there's an army coming behind him that is his wife clothed in fine linen, clean and white. And you can pair that up to Isaiah, right? Or we, our sins were scarlet, they'll be made white as snow, right? White as snow. So it, it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us of our iniquity and gives us those robes of righteousness, which is of the saints. Amen? So point number five, last one for tonight. Imminency. That's a word you need to know. Imminency. The imminency keeps us salty. That's how I wrote it. The imminency keeps us salty. Turn, turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 25. This is the, the wise and the foolish virgins. Matthew 25. And there's a, there's a few places that we're going to go right here, and we're going to go kind of quickly so that we can get them all. These are, in con these are concepts that you need to hold on to. Matthew 25, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil in them. The wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Now, here's something that you may have missed. It, 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 at the second coming, Jesus comes to the earth. He comes to the rescue of Israel. Here, the virgins are called out to meet the bridegroom. This parallels with us being the bride of Christ. Now, and I, um, one of the things that I want you to see, though, is that they didn't know when. They didn't know when he was coming. The, the, the five wise kept oil in their lamp. They were ready. It didn't matter what time he came, they were ready. On the other hand, there were foolish virgins. We could say it like this. There are foolish church members that may not be living right, that may not have the oil of the Holy Spirit rolling in their lives. And what happens is when that 
when that time comes and the bridegroom cometh and it's time to go meet him, they're not ready. They're not ready. That's an important principle. Imminency should keep you salty. Imminency should keep you salty. Um, over and over through the book of Revelation, you can write this one down, Revelation chapter 16, in, in different places, the Lord said, Behold, I come quickly. I come quickly. The word quickly there means quickly. It means that you don't know when, but when it happens, it's going to happen. The book of First uh, Corinthians says that it's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. The Apostle Paul writes, in the twinkling of an eye. And you read earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that when the trumpet sounds, dead go. And we are to alive and remain. We're just caught, snatched, caught up, snatched out. With, you know, Philip, when he was baptizing that Ethiopian eunuch and the Lord caught him up to a totally different place, he didn't have time to ask, where are we going? He was busy doing the Lord's business and then God just took him to another place. And as you're busy doing the Lord's business, then you know God's going to just take you to another place. Amen. So a couple of other places I want to get, I want to hit on. First Thessalonians chapter five. We read first Thessalonians chapter four. Now we're going to read first Thessalonians chapter five. We're going to go here and then one more passage and we'll be done. First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse number one. But of the times and seasons, brethren, now this is immediately after writing about the rapture. Again, the word caught up means rapture, okay? So immediately after talking about the rapture, about caught up, verse number one, 1 Thessalonians 5. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh, as a thief in the night. Does a thief knock on your door? Does, it, does a thief leave a note on your car telling you I'm going to come next week? A thief just comes, right? In a time when you know not. In an hour that, you don't, that you're not aware. Just like the foolish and the wise virgins. They, neither one of them knew when he was coming. It's just that the wise virgins were ready for his coming. But notice this. The thief in the night. That's a concept you need to hold on to. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon woman with the child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, that's the church, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. When Jesus comes, he's not going to take you as a thief. You, 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 listen, I want you to see this. Look at this next part. You are all children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Let us watch and be sober. Now, this sobriety that we're talking about is spiritual sobriety it's also literal sobriety because you can't be spiritually sober and literally not sober (laughs) you have to know that this sobriety means you're ready it means you're ready for the lord to come right now like if the lord was ready to come right now you would be ready right now in fact the more you know the Lord, you not only are ready, you're excited. One of the things we see that the Apostle Paul wrote is Maranatha is like, come Lord Jesus. One of the things that struck fear in my heart as a child was that I grew up in a church that prayed for the Lord to come back. It made me fearful because I, was, I wanted to live my life. I wasn't saved. I wanted to live my life. But after I got saved, I'm ready for him to come back. And it's a true mark, whether you're, whether you're his or not, when you can truly, earnestly pray, Lord, come back. Come right now. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And that was that mark that they had. But I, I, I want to point something out. I want to point something out. It says, um, one of the things that, that we see is that whenever the Lord comes back, when the Lord comes here in this passage, at the second coming, at the second coming, at the second coming, everybody's going to see him. The sun's going to get dark. The moon's going to get dark. 
the stars are going to fall, there's going to be no light, and then the Son of God is going to begin to come, Revelation 19. And they're all going to begin to be fearful. They're all going to shake and quake. And the Lord's going to come back and he's going to settle scores. He's going to consume the Antichrist. And, you know, he's going to bind Satan for a thousand years. All these things will begin to unfold. But they're going to see nothing except for Jesus. And he's going to get little and then bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's going to descend upon this earth. It'll be the only thing anybody can see. Can you imagine No light at all on all the earth except Jesus as he begins to come back. Every eye will see. Every eye will see. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But every eye will see the second coming. But that's not what this says. This says he's going to be like a thief in the night. So that tells you when the rapture happens, there's going to be a lot of the world that doesn't see it. When we see him, we're going to be made like him according to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. When we see him, we'll be made like him. We'll see him. The world won't. The church will just be gone, gone, gone. We'll be gone with the wind. They won't know where we went. They won't know why all the graves are open, but we'll be gone. Some people even teach that all children under the age of 12 or under the age of accountability, all children will likewise be gone. Can you imagine that? No children? What would a home be like? No children. Nurseries, schools, no children. Amazing. What this, I mean, literally amazing. It's going to be the most catastrophic event. There's going to be no event like what's about to happen. This is the very next event on God's prophetic radar, and there is nothing like it that's ever happened nor will happen. When Enoch was taken out, it was one. When Lot and his family taken out, it was just a few. When Noah and his family got on the ark, it was just a few. What happens at the rapture? I hope it's a bunch. But it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot. And on that day, he's going to come like a thief in the night. In other words, this is going to be a time when this happens, other people won't see it. Thief in the, that's what that means. But when he comes at the second coming in Revelation 19, every eye sees. Every eye sees at the second coming. And there's other passages that you can get in that, uh, namely in the book of of Matthew chapter 24 and 25, those places too. Now, continuing in, he says that we're called to be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith. And love, and for a helmet, the hope, hope, the hope of salvation. Verse 9, last verse on this section. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who's not appointed to wrath? Who's not appointed to wrath? The church. Who's not appointed to wrath? The church. You read earlier in Revelation 6, verse 16, what's going to happen in the tribulation time? What's it called? Wrath of the Lamb. Wrath of the Lamb. So there's there's that imminency produces saltiness. And you know God's wrath never comes on the church, and you see it right there, right? We're not appointed to wrath. Last last one, a couple of pages over. Go to Timothy chapter number, I mean Titus chapter number 2. Titus chapter 2. We're going to close right here. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Titus 2, 11 through 13. It says, The grace of God, the grace of God that bringeth salvation, hath appeared to all men, teaching us, that's the believer, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly righteously, and godly in this present world. Right? That's, that's being a light in a dark environment. That's what we're called to do. Lift up Jesus. As we listened to General Booth earlier say. And look at this, verse number 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself 
a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I told you we started with hope. We're ending with hope. Another phrase for the rapture is the blessed hope. The blessed hope. That's another, the, the blessed hope is another name that people call. And it says looking. I want to point that out. Looking. Are you looking for it? Because God's coming back for a pure bride. God's coming back for a looking bride, a sober bride, a righteous bride, a bride that is redeemed, a bride that is zealous for good works, a peculiar bride. He's coming back for the wise virgins, not the foolish virgins. But notice, they're all virgins. There's some virgins that will not make the trumpet sound. In the... And that should produce sobriety in the saint. If you read that again in Matthew 25, there are ten virgins. Five don't make it. Five don't make it. Five make it. The five that make it are ready. They're watching. They're looking for their blessed hope. They're longing. They're praying. Daniel prayed for his nation. Most of the time... If you get the church to pray, it's so they can get a new house. Daniel was praying for his nation. Why was he praying for the nation? Because that's where they could offer sacrifices. That's where they could worship God at. We can worship God anywhere. We are the temple of God now in this dispensation. And so I just encourage you to, to reread these verses and look for your blessed hope. Amen. What a blessed hope we have. This is an hour like no other. My fa- one of my favorite teachers is Leonard Ravenhill, and he said that the, the saints of yesteryear longed to breathe the air that we breathe because it's ripe for the rapture. And he said that in the 80s. He said that in the 80s. How much more are we ripe for the rapture? And I would say the church is probably more asleep than it's ever been. So... It's incumbent upon me and you to get this kind of teaching to others. So I taught, we taught tonight, not just for our own selves, not just to cause us to know things, but to receive things and then to give things. Amen? As Jesus said, freely you've received, now freely give. Take what you've learned, take what you know about the Lord, and freely give it to others in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, let's pray and we'll close. If anybody has any questions, we'll take them.